0: This week on Making Contact.
1: And it's good to be next to the death row inmates because they read the really great books because they're preparing for the next world. And so the books that they give you are really intense books.
0: From illiterate street kid to world-renowned poet, Jimmy Santiago Baca has lived a long and winding path. It was in prison that Baca connected with his Native American and Chicano heritage and began learning the lessons of his people's past.
1: I ask myself, who kept this from me? Why wasn't I given these things? Why did people let me stray off and float like flotsam along the beach? I have a right to read. This is beautiful. This is my legacy as an American.
0: On this edition, Progressive Magazine editor Matthew Rothschild sits down with Jimmy Santiago Baca. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. I am eight years old, black,
1: brown, and white pigs. Approach the grain pail my uncle shakes, and in his other hand draws a pistol, shooting the brown one in the brain, as its brothers guzzle blood poolin' in the trough. That's how life is, my uncle says. Brothers drinking brothers' blood in the streets.
0: And I took that to heart. Back in the 1960s, when Jimmy Santiago Baca ran away from an orphanage in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he didn't have the means, the support, or the words to express his anger, his frustrations, or his analysis. Paradoxically, it was in prison and in isolation where Baca found the tools to change his life. In 1979, he published his first book of poetry. It was the same year he was finally released from prison. Today, Baca devotes much of his life to helping impoverished youth and adults learn to express themselves through the written and spoken word. In 2009, Matthew Rothschild interviewed Jimmy Santiago Baca to learn more about his unique life trajectory and his aspirations for the future. How'd you get interested in poetry?
1: Uh, I was, you know, the story runs, I was, uh, uh, I was in prison and I, um, I was really bored of crime. I was just bored. What were you in prison for? Drugs, the sale of drugs and using drugs. I was just turned 18 years old and just the whole criminal life bored. I was just bored with prison. I was bored with prison life. I was bored with crime. I was bored with gangs. I was just really boring. I, I, you know, if somebody probably would have come up with a different way to rob a store, I probably would have been a, a, a robber, but... Just There's no change. You walk in, you take the money, and you leave. And I thought, this is really boring. And the gangs are really boring. They keep talking about the same thing over and over and over. And so at that point in time, um, I wanted to go to school, and the the counselor promised I could go to school if I didn't get in trouble, so I I went 60 days in the kitchen at 4 o'clock in the morning. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience to go out in the yard while the moon was still high and it was dark. And the guard towers and all the guards with their rifles. And it was a beautiful time of morning. And it really changed me somewhat. Were you the only one out there? Yeah. I'd have to stand in the yard until the guard came and got me. And I would look at the moon and I would smell the desert smells. It was in Arizona. And it affected my soul in a big way. And then I thought, well, I need to, I'm need going to go to school now and I'm going to learn how to read and write. And my dream was to go back to Estancia and Moriate and uh, Willard, Tajique, all these villages and, uh, and work with kids, because really the reason that I wanted to learn how to read and write, aside from getting my, my my credentials, my GED, was because I had gone through so much pain not being able to express myself in situations. I mean, I had cut my arm one day. It was bleeding everywhere. I put my fist through the windshield, and my girlfriend says, Are you okay? And I was like, I'm okay, because I, I just didn't know how to express the pain. I was going with another girlfriend who was going out with every guy in the world but me at night, I, a way of numbing that pain was to drink a lot and do a lot of drugs, and it, it just ultimately I just could not express my role in life or in the world, and it just it was killing me. So that was really why I wanted to. And then they reneged on their deal and they betrayed me and said I couldn't go to school. So I something broke down in me. In the reclassification committee meeting, they said you're you're going to get yourself out in the field, and something broke down. I couldn't get out of the chair, and then and then I remember being hit by this guard named Five Hundred. And I remember the last thing I saw was, uh, was the room whirling, and it was actually me. He had hit me so hard that I would flown out of my chair. Why did they call him 500? He was over 500 pounds. He broke all the ribs on my left side. He broke my jaw. They had to wire my jaw back together because any kind of, kind of defiant behavior like that has to be dealt with immediately because it wasn't in the gang mode or role. Here was, an, here was a convict who was saying, I want to go to school. And for some reason, the committee thought that was even more dangerous than stabbing somebody. And I didn't understand it at the time. I was really naive. But when I went to my cell and didn't go to work, the repercussions of that one decision sent a current, a frenzied current of confusion, not only through all my homeboys that that I was in the gang with. They were all like freaked out. And then the guards were freaked out. And then the warden came down and said, hey, you don't start getting in line. You're not going to walk out of here. And what happened then? Well, they sent Mad Dog Madrill up to my cell, and he was, he was, he was, he was the one person that you, you did not want to visit you. And he came upstairs. This and, was a guard or a prisoner? A guard. He came up there, opened up my cell after three weeks. And by this time, all the prisoners had said, you know, I was one of the, I was one of the most heroic kids in the prison. I came in, I uh, just turned 18, and I was fighting anything that moved. And everybody looked up to me, and all the guys who weren't affiliated with gangs followed me. So we had about 40, 50 guys with me, you know? We were just homeless stragglers from all over the states and not affiliated with anyone. We were just not from any town, any barrio, any neighborhood, because we were homeless. So all these gypsy convicts were with me, and I had proven myself to them numerous occasions. And after the second or third week, they looked up at me, and they said the words that hurt me the most. They said... uh, Maybe he's a punk. Maybe he's a rat. And I was like, "Wow, how could you say that to me?" You know. So that was that was. Uh, I had lost the only thing that I had in life, and that was my 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 respect.
2: And then what happened when
1: this brutal guard came in? Well, they, they uh, the guards came up. They pulled me out of my cell. They took me to isolation. Standing in the landing and watching them tear my cell apart. Uh I was standing there, and somebody uh, the convicts all started um, throwing stuff at me. And I tried to disassociate myself from myself and said, this is not really me, you know? And somebody threw hot water and somebody threw urine and someone threw feces at me. And uh, it's even hard to talk about, but um, I wiped it off. I wiped the feces off and I turned around and I kept telling myself, this is not me, you know? This is, They're not they're not mad at me, they're mad at somebody else. And then all of a sudden the guards came and uh, they they chained they me up and they walked me out of the cell block. And I'll never forget the feeling when I walked out of the cell block doors, it suddenly filled me with an overwhelming sense of fulfillment that I had wanted to do this since I was born. I just wanted to make a choice in life, whether it was right or wrong. And it was that that gave me this overwhelming peace of purpose. I was like, I have a role in life, even if it's People throwing stuff at
2: me. But how did you survive, though? Did they put you in the hole, and they were brutalizing you? How'd you get from there to three years? Man, mm-hmm. they knocked, the,
1: they knocked the living hell out of me for three years. Mm-hmm. They really beat me bad. They broke a lot of bones, and they. Um, I became somewhat of a hero because I, I had I had for three years I lived in administrative custody where they called me a security risk, and then they would uh, cars would come down and just beat the living hell out of me, and. Um, I would fight him, you know i wasn 't going to let him do that, but I would fight him then i 'd wake up in isolation and in isolation, I learned how to do transcendental meditation by accident i would uh, I would just close my eyes and i 'd be back in my village and i 'd spend the entire day there and uh, and it was really a beautiful, beautiful thing and this thing i didn 't realize what it was called till much, much later, but I would close my eyes and I would have this fierce rush of volcanic. Tornado like white light rush from my tailbone off the top of my head, and I was like whoa! And then I would like be able to look over the prison and say wow! And I go to my village and go see my girlfriend, and then I get a I would get like little cards from my, my sister later saying I had the strongest feeling that you were in the room yesterday, and I really was in the room, and I began to realize that 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 life is much 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 deeper and broader than than what we see with our eyes and our senses. And uh, I I was just, I was bouncing out of my body on a daily basis and I had lost weight. And I lived in my boxer shorts for three and a half years, didn't put on my pants or shoes for three and a half years uh, until one day the guard came and said, uh, I had written my very first poem and I had sent it out six months earlier and I had forgotten about it. And I was reading feverishly all these works by Emily Dickinson and Thoreau and Emerson and the Romantic poets and the Black Mountain poets and the Latin American poets and the the, uh, the Surrealists from France. And I was reading so many, so many, so many things. I, I was, I was, I was not really in prison. I was somewhere else. And uh, and they came. and They called my number thirty two five eighty one. And I was like, yeah. And they had left me alone by this time. They were like, this guy's. We just got to bury him. So they put me with all the gang leaders and they put me with the death row inmates. And it's good to be next to the death row inmates because they read the really great books because they're preparing for the next world. Hmm. And so the books that they give you are really intense books. There's now no comic books, right? Despite what uh, modern media, I mean, uh, popular media would, would have. They don't want to waste their time. Yeah, they're not wasting time. They're, they're preparing, right? So so they gave me the books and I was reading uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and I was reading Fitzgerald's Great uh, Gatsby House. Incredible. And I, I asked myself, who kept this from me? Why wasn't I given these things? Why did people let me stray off and float like flotsam along the beach? I have a right to read. This is beautiful. This is my legacy as an American. So I was reading voraciously. And, uh, and then the guards would come and tear everything up and, and all that stuff. And anyway, he called my name. And I, when I came out of the cell, I actually put on my pants for the first time in three years on my boots and i actually walked outside for the first time and i must have looked really bad but i felt almost like in a manic state because when i came across the yard all the gang members who had hated me i had been writing on their behalf poetry and stuff and i had my first little book of poetry published called immigrants in our own land and I, and they all came across the yard the mexican mafia the aryan brotherhood the black gorilla family everybody came and said are you all right bro and i'm like I must have had these huge bulbous eyes because I only weigh, I realized I weighed 90 pounds. Mm. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And they were like, are you sure, bro? And I'm like, I'm, I feel great, although I was really pale from the sunlight. And I went to the visiting area, and it was the first time I smelled perfume and saw women's hair and lipstick, and I sat there just thanking God for lipstick and for painted mm-hmm. toenails, you know. I kept looking at their toenails thinking how beautiful they are, painted, you know. And I'm great. speaking with Jimmy Santiago
2: Baca, the poet who uh, was in prison, wrote poets, uh, poems in prison. Uh, what was that first poem that you sent out? It was called uh,
1: Immigrants in Our Own Land. And it was, uh, I remember Bonafide, who was in there for killing four people in that prison. He had already gone there for murder, but they let him out. And they he, was my, he was living next to me. And it's funny because Bonafide and myself and Texas Red were the only people selling single in the entire prison. I was considered that dangerous because I refused to work, mm-hmm. and the warden said we're not going to let this out because if everybody else refuses to work, we're in some deep problems here. So it was really—I I didn't understand the politics of uh, of uh, Gandhi-esque uh, defiance, uh, but so I—I I was just making—I didn't—I uh, didn't go along with anything, and it and it and it, and it just upset everybody. And I wrote this poem, and I, and I stole the poem out of the Bible, not thinking that anyone read the Bible. And I said, I just replaced the words at first by saying that Teresa Maria created the world, and she created the clouds and the trees. And then I gave it to Bonafide, thinking he didn't know. I said, hey, check it out, I wrote this poem to her, you know? It was a way of trying to get back this woman that I was in love with. And she, uh, He said, no, no, you can't steal from God, because it's a problem. Yeah. So he he hit me up with the biggest, biggest uh, challenge that I'd ever faced up to that point. And he said to me, you've got to be honest, Jimmy. And it's, it, you know, when you're a street kid and homeless, you can't be honest, especially when you're in love with the woman. You've got to tell her that the car is yours, even though you stole it. You can't be honest about that, because if you admit to yourself that you have nothing and you are no one, the next step is suicide. I couldn't go there. But I finally had to sit down and say, look, OK, fine, I'll write this poem. And I wrote a poem uh, ...admitting that I have nothing but this poem to give you. And believe it or not, believe it or not... Um, ...in that visiting room that day... ...the person that came to see me I thought was my brother. It was it was Teresa. She'd come all the way from Chicago. And all the money and all the drugs and all the stolen cars... ...had never, ever compelled her to come out of her room. A poem made her drive halfway across the United States to see me. And when she saw me, it was devastating because... I wasn't in love with her. I had been reading uh, Madame Bovary, I had been reading Lorca, I had been reading all these great poets, and they had changed the DNA molecules and the structure of how I saw and defined beauty. And when I saw her standing there, I could tell she was high on math. She had that glittery look in her eye, and she was dressed like a lap dancer and stuff. And I thought, well, it's so sad, it's, it's just a sad, sad thing when the literature that you've been reading." Uh, redefines your, ups, your 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 standard of beauty, and the one thing that you were living for is taken from you. And at that point, I had a decision whether I was going to go out and just be a criminal and wreck havoc, or whether I was going to pursue literature because of this change. I was going to wanted to know what was beyond this change. And how'd you make that decision, Jimmy Santiago Baca? Well, I was sad. I was. I saw her, and I said, "Wow, I don't love her. I mean, I, I have a whole different uh, definition from beauty now, and you're just not it." And she came up and she slapped me because she must have seen it because I was just sitting. I must have I must have ogled her or oogled her in confusion. And she came up and she slapped me and she said, "You're not happy to see me." And I just I couldn't speak. And she left and I and it was devastating because when I turned around and walked back across the yard, I was both elated and I was also in sorrow because I thought, "Wow, I have nothing to work toward anymore," and yet. I was experiencing the power of literature. It had changed my mind about something. And so there was still there was still some vestiges of criminality in my brain. So I went immediately back to the cell and wrote a poem to the judge, seeing if he'd release me. But it didn't work. <laughs> I wrote a poem to the guy and he wrote me back a poem from Phoenix telling me what an idiot I was. I deserved double time. I thought, well, maybe sometimes poetry does work, sometimes it
0: doesn't. <laughs> You're listening to Jimmy Santiago Baca being interviewed by Progressive Magazine editor Matthew Rothschild. You can find more information about Baca on our website, radioproject.org. We'll be right back to learn more about how Baca's successes as a writer began with a few shoebox prison poems. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Matthew Rothschild interviewing Jimmy Santiago Baca, a world-renowned Chicano and Native American poet who learned how to read and write during his years in prison. I
1: finally got out after six and a half years. Uh, I spent almost half of that in isolation or on segregation, uh, administrative segregation, because the warden thought I was a risk, security risk. And there was kind of a miraculous success of
2: that first book of poems that you wrote, uh, you somehow got those poems to Mother Jones and Denise Levertov, who was the poetry editor I read in preparation for this interview. How did that happen?
1: I didn't even know how to... I did... uh, A friend of mine, a gangster, a true gangster, Teo Nihosa, spent his 50 years in prison, came by, and by this time I had been writing... uh, To earn my cigarettes and my coffee, I had been writing poems to the convict's daughters and wives and 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 you know the funny thing I'm going to tell you something that so so tripped me out there was this Aryan Brotherhood guy named cromdom who was who was a stone straight up killer, I mean you don't even look at the man, and he came to my cell one day and he said uh, I want you to write a, mo- a poem to my mom up in uh, Alabama and I said okay, I said it's going to cost you a carton of cigarettes because I mean the guy hated Chicanos and he was, you know he'd kill many of them, so I said alright I'll do it so what well, it's going to cost you double so I charged him a whole carton and I wrote it and it was my first opportunity to go into that world because uh, I had never, my mother had abandoned me at five years old. So I went back to the period when I remembered laying with her in bed and playing with her dress ham and playing with her hair. And I got so deep into that poem that uh, it shook every, 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 every tendon in my body. And when Chromedome came back to the cell, I said, here's, here's your poem, you know, give me the rest of my smokes. He, uh, he said, read it, because he didn't know how to read. So as I began to read the poem, I noticed that his knuckles were turning purple on the bars and his face was turning red. And that's not a good sign because this guy's going to kill me now because something happened in the poem where I might have insulted his mother. And I stopped and I said, here, take the poem. I don't want to read it. And uh, he said, no, read. So I said, all right. So I kept reading it. And then when I handed it to him, he stared at me with almost on the verge of glazed rage and said to me something that I'll never forget. He said, how does a Mexican know what's in a white man's heart. Mm. And I knew right then and there, good Lord, thank you, poetry, thank you, poetry, for giving me this power. Mm. I, knew, I knew I had a power that was endless. And then um, uh, shortly after that, Taylor Hossa uh, tattooed from head to toe a real stone-cold Texas gangster Threw a magazine in my cell and said, he used to call me a uh, hermit because I was always reading. He'd say, hey, hermit, uh, they're offering $100 a poem. And so I grabbed a few from a shoebox, put them in an envelope, and then uh, Bonafide and Clifton showed me how to address it. And I sent it off and I forgot about it. And good Lord, geez, a month later, they're announcing that I get a little envelope, it says I got $300 in my box at the commissary store. I'm like, are you kidding me? A hundred bucks a pop? Oh, I could be rich off of poetry. Of course, that was like a really naive <laughs> assumption, right? So I. Uh, I bought ice cream for the whole, the whole, all of the death row and all the segregation. I just, I just splurged on everybody and bought ice cream for everybody. And uh, I realized, wow, this is incredible. And then, uh, and then it came out in Mother Jones uh, and then LSU. I got a letter from them saying, we'd like to publish a book of yours. And they didn't know I was in prison. They wanted to know if I, they could come visit me and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I could just see it. Right. So I, I just said, no, I don't think that's possible. But uh, I sent them the stuff, and they published it, and Denise gave it an introduction. And when you
2: got out, you, you, didn't take, you haven't taken the traditional route of the academic poet, you know, uh, which may be the easy way, and you keep going back to, to giving uh, workshops in prison. Uh, tell me about
1: that. What happened was immediately after I came out of prison, I didn't want anything to do with prisons. I wanted to stay as far away from gangsters, prisons, and drugs. So I, I, they gave me the Wallace Stevens shirt, Yale, and I went there. And then I was offered some gigs in New York to write. And I went, um, I went back on a Christmas to uh, Albuquerque, where I'm from, Santa Fe. And um, during the barbacoa, during the pachanga, during that Christmas time, I brought books because that's all I had to give out, so I brought books. And every single person I gave a book to came back to me around that bonfire while I was drinking beer and back in the barrio saying hi to all my friends and said, what's this word? What's this word? What's this word? And then a gentleman came up to me, and he said something really, really remarkable that was sort of a reckoning at that moment, a pivotal reckoning. He says, instead of being at Yale, Jimmy, why don't you come here where we need you? Because I don't know how to read. And I looked at my friend, he was in his 50s, and he says, I don't know how to read, and it's a shame because my daughter asked me. And, and And I said... I just kind of shook my head and said, you know, I'm beside myself. I thought, I'll think about that. And when I went back to New Haven, I told Master Thompson, I don't think I can stay any longer. I have to go back. So I went back, and I started my first writing workshop at St. Anne's Church in a barrack behind the church. The priest let me have one. And I took some South Streeters in there, and we had our first poetry workshop. Jimmy Santiago Baca, do you want to read something for us, either a a poem or a a passage? You know, I would like to read a poem. I was in Milwaukee... um, with Lori Vance, Express Yourself Milwaukee, and it was about the importance of expressing yourself, and I was working with a bunch of gang kids, and I said that, you know, we can't allow ourselves to go into the uh, you-don't-understand-me syndrome. I remember distinctly standing in front of the judge before getting sentenced when I was 17 years old to a maximum-security prison, and I remember thinking, you don't understand me, man. so why should I have to say anything to you? But I did bow my head in reverence to the memory of my grandmother and said, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for... You know, you worked your life in the fields, and, and this is what you get, right? I'm sorry. <clears throat> it won't happen again. I told my grandma, and it hasn't. But um, it did kill my grandfather, mm. this inability of people to understand each other. But we play that game where we say, you don't understand me, and that sort of acts as an excuse for us to behave with gangs and stuff. And the other day, when I told people that the second you have an opinion, you empower yourself to define who you are. And it really struck the kids. And it, uh, it was hard to stop the dialogue in the room. It was just ferocious. Ferocious is a word that's voracious and ferocious. I like <laughs> Anyway, this one's called, uh, this one's called uh, portate bien in Spanish. It means behave yourself. And it's a, it's a sort of homage to my grandpa. Portate bien. Behave yourself, he always said to me. And I behaved myself when others were warm in winter and I stood out in the cold I behaved myself when others had full plates and I stared at them hungrily through the restaurant windows, never speaking out of turn, behaving like a good boy, until my behavior shattered by outsiders who came to the village one day insulting Grandpa because he couldn't speak English. And English became the invader's sword, the oppressor's language. I used to run out to see my Grandpa every evening when he came back from the fields, and his heart and his body and his soul were like an apricot tree. And that man used English to cut his soul down, to cut the apricot tree down. Because that day hurled me into a profound despair. That day, Grandpa and I walked into the farm office for a loan, and this man didn't give Grandpa an application because he said he was stupid. And that moment cut me in two pieces. One screaming, my grandpa was a lovely man. And the other screaming, this man This farm office clerk, a beast, was a beast. And I saw my grandpa's eyes go dark with wound regret that I, his grandchild, should see him humiliated. But the scene of my grandpa in that room and what came out of his soul and what soared from his veins, it was the scene... That's never left me through all the sadness and terrors and joys that have blossomed and shattered my innocence. I've never forgotten the room that day and the way the light filtered in through the windows lazily and the dignified presence of my grandpa confused looking down at me in his sheepskin coat and feel working boots. That scene and the way that the boards creaked under his work boots when he shifted his weight. It haunted me even with my five children born at home and I had their mother's blood and their birth blood in my hands. I vowed to God they would never be humiliated like this. That scene, that dusty day with the drought-baked clay in my pants cuffs and the sheep starving for feed and my grandpa's hopes up that the farm-aid man would help us as he had other English-speaking farmers. That scene, framed in my ten-year-old mind, having prayed at 4.30 at Mass that morning, begging God on my knees, please, God, don't let the sheep die. Please perform a miracle for us with a little help from the farm-aid man. I knew entering that door, seeing... White folks come out smiling with sign papers to buy feed that we were going to survive the drought. That scene with its wooden floor and my shoes, scraping sand grains that had flown in, the hot sun warming my face, and me standing in the room later by myself looking for Grandpa. After the farm aid man had turned us down, and I knew our sheep were going to die, three generations of it, and I knew Grandpa was going to die, that moment opened the wound in me. And in that wound, I heard the cry, why? The cry of grief, the cry of hurt, the cry of confusion. Why did this man turn us down? That day changed my life forever and made me a man, made me understand that because grandpa couldn't speak English. He had to die. And when I turned and I walked out the door on the main street, squinting my eyes at the whirling dust, looking for grandpa, the world was never the same. Because it was the first time I'd ever witnessed how racism could take the one person you loved in life and kill him. It was the first time I'd ever witnessed how racism could take a whole village of people's dreams and kill them. And during all of it, all my grandpa said was, Pórtate bien, mijito. Behave yourself, my son. Behave.
0: That was poet Jimmy Santiago Baca being interviewed by Matthew Rothschild. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to The Progressive Magazine and Liz DiNovella. And thanks to our production intern, Christopher Homback for assistance with this show. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.